0: This is the title poem, uh, What to Do If You're Buried Alive. First, you should feel very glad for having read this poem. Don't panic. All you have to do is break the slats. Breathing will be easier if you knot your shirt tight around your face. A call. Your eyes can't help you now, so leave them closed. Don't waste breath on prayers or strength on punches. Instead, use your knees to start an avalanche. Don't stop. When loose soil starts to flow through the cracks, pretend you're riding a bicycle through a rural downpour. Don't mind the splinters. Remember, if you can sit, you can kneel. Then you can stand.
1: Well, hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 234. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's guest is Michael Mayerhofer. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do all this because we love poetry and know you do too. So please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed, ring the bell. Um, but follow us, too. I think following, I've heard from Katie Dojer. I have to say, is uh, the most important thing you can do. So whatever your platform, you hear this, make sure you're following Rattle. Even if you only watch on YouTube, like go to iTunes and follow us there. Go to Spotify, go to Amazon Music, go to YouTube uh, Music, which is the new app that they're trying to launch. Anywhere you can follow Rattle. I guess the most followers we can have helps. We have like 5,000 on YouTube um, but it would be great to have more elsewhere. So if you watch on YouTube, go follow somewhere else. Michael Mayerhoff is a contemporary poet and fantasy author who believes that those two genres genuinely can get along. So that's interesting to start with. His fifth book of poetry, Ragged Eden, was published by Glass Liar Press. His fourth, What to Do If You're Buried Alive, was originally published by Split Press, and then recently re-released by The Fine Books at Double Back Press. In addition to his poetry books, he has published two fantasy trilogies. An avid weightlifter, medieval weapons collector, and unabashed history nerd, he currently lives, teaches, and inhabits the coffee shops around Fresno, Arizona. And here he is, Michael Mayerhofer. Hey, Michael, it's great to see you.
0: Hey, what's going on? Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, I mean, you came down for the Wrightwood, one of those pop-up literary festivals we did. It was great to get to know you then. You know, we've known you for a long time through your work. It's great to see you again. So what can you tell us about this chapbook? It's your fourth book. Uh, what to Do if You're Buried Alive. And it's really neatly, you know, it's re-released as a digital book, which anybody can download for free, which is really fun. So, so tell us what the book is about. How much does that poem have to do with the book's concept?
0: Uh, a lot and then not at all at the same time. Uh, so what happened was um, uh, quite a few years back, uh, my good friend mentor, John Treble, who passed away a while back, I was talking to him and I was just kind of saying, I'm at critical mass. I have so many poems, I don't know what to do to put them in a the manuscript. So he kind of generously volunteered to look at just mountains of poems. And he ended up actually putting the manuscript together himself, uh, mostly mostly this way. Hmm. Uh, but it kind of didn't have the title poem yet. And I felt like I needed a little bit something more. And then I was kind of, I was thinking about, I guess, depression, mental illness, and just various struggles in general. And then I think I was just kind of nerding out one day and I saw a History Channel thing about people being buried alive or some history video. Uh, and a lot of it, of course, is urban legend and everything. And I started doing research on this and uh, research. And I ended up with like a like a 10-page poem with all these examples and going on and on and on. And then it just kind of felt not quite right. So I just sort of whittled it down, whittled it down. And I ended up with like this little poem that's about half a page. <laughs> so.
1: Well, that's a good lesson in a, in revision there to turn it from, uh, you know, many, many pages to this short poem. almost sonnet-like. I think it's like maybe 16 lines or something like that. Yeah. So, so what can you tell us about your background? I mean, I've known you for a long time, but I don't really know, you know, how you came to be a poet and the fact that you're interested in so many things in history and weightlifting uh, and <laughs> medieval weaponry and then poetry, too, you know, and writing fantasy novels, too. That's not something that you usually see from a poet. So how does the how do all those things intersect? Like, what was it that got you into poetry in the first place?
0: I was just always a very weird dude. That was, that was kind of the part. Uh, But I actually wasn't really that interested in poetry until a little bit later. I was always interested in stories and fantasy and stuff like that. Uh, But I kind of had a a less than idyllic upbringing and I had to deal with a lot of like anxiety and birth defects and kind of bullying and that kind of stuff. So that kind of got me interested in a lot of different things like weightlifting and all that stuff because my coping mechanism. Uh, But then um, I kind of dabbled in poetry a little bit and then, when I was twenty, uh, my mom passed away, and I was in. In course of dealing with that, that kind of dredged up all that bottled up Midwestern angst, <laughs> and so all of that came out. And um, I realized that as much as I love fiction, I-, I couldn't address it directly, like you know, because when when you write a story, even if the character is basically you, you still have to give it that backstory. You have to build it up. Whereas, like, there's a certain immediacy in poetry. So I think I. I'm pretty sure it was What the Living Do by Murray Howe. I read mm-hmm. that in the class at just the right time and a few other books and a lot of Sharon Old stuff and Dorian Luck stuff. And I just started writing uh, and wrote just the worst poetry ever written by a human being for years and years and years. Uh, and then I kind of, you know, I was lucky enough where I went to uh, undergrad at uh, University of Iowa at uh, the Prairie Lights bookstore there and in the coffee shop. They had just tons and tons and tons of journals, like for free, just stacks and stacks. So I kind of just—that was kind of my my crash course. I would just sit down with my overpriced coffee and like a stack of twenty journals, just something and kind of go through it and just kind of try and learn the best I could.
1: Hmm. So, so there's a very personal reason to be writing poems. That you know, poetry as healing is something we talk about all the time on this broadcast, and it seems like. Uh, you know, the the fantasy maybe was for for fun and and for a career, maybe. And then the poetry was for yourself. Is there a clear distinction like that?
0: It's hard to say, because to a lot of people, they do sound very, very different. And to me, they don't seem different at all. Hmm. Uh, It's just like, it's just different tools in the toolbox. Like, I'm also really into, quote unquote, Eastern poetry, like a lot of haiku and and senryu and Tanka and all that stuff. And it was all just self-taught. I'm not an expert at all but I remember I was teaching a little workshop on that and, and talking about it and it kind of explaining that for me, it's just different tools in the toolbox because certain ideas, if I sit down to write it as a, I'd say a lineated poem and it's just not working, I, I could switch to a prose poem. Or I could switch to maybe a a flash fiction piece or creative nonfiction or whatever. Uh, and then, so the, the leap to sci-fi fantasy is a little bit different, but I kind of feel in a weird way that it's getting at the same stuff in the opposite way. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause like, There's an argument, it's like the Stephen King thing about, you know, writing for yourself versus writing for for an audience. And he makes the point, and I think on writing, that both audiences or both artists are basically uh, equally selfish. I think that's true, Mm -hmm. right? So I kind of like being able to look at it from different ways and, you know, kind of get at maybe some kind of cultural commentary while having fun writing a a fantasy story or a sci-fi story. Then you can switch back to something a little more personal.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about something a little more personal, too, with a poem. So the next one up you have is My Mother's Autopsy. And you talked about how you know, this was the, the event, really, that got you into writing poems. Uh, so why don't you read that? Sure.
0: Sorry, you have to watch my hand here. I'm having technical issues. <laughs> my Mother's Autopsy. A man with a Scottish accent calls to say he's found a blank verse sonnet in her ribcage, folded up like a love letter. I can hardly express my disbelief before he moves on to the haiku on the underside of her eyelids, the pantoum bracketed in vertebrae, a rather body limerick buried in the saccharine junkyard of her kidneys. I didn't know, I say, as he lauds the ode wreathing her navel, the erasure where her thighs meet. He lowers his voice, says he knows we've asked to get her back in ash form, offers to read some before feeding the rest to fire. But this is where it ends, thanks to the alarm clock spurring me down the freeway with the sun in my eyes. So many exits before the real one. Still, I can feel her beside me saying nothing, except to apologize every time a bump causes her arm to brush against mine.
1: And that was my mother's autopsy. Another poem from Michael Mayerhofer. Uh, so, so Michael, you know, we see, we've seen two poems so far. And the thing that always stands out to me with your work, even as a reviewer too, you know, I love the reviews we published of yours way back when we actually published reviews. And there's something about the the clarity and honesty of your reviews that worked really well. And that's how your poems work too. I mean, there's not a lot of you know flowery extension. You talked about. You know, condensing that first poem down from many pages until its essence, which is a really short, tight poem. So, so what is your philosophy like for writing in general? Is that a big part of it?
0: I think one of my main philosophies, I guess it has to do with the, the idea of accessibility, but I despise pretension. I hate pretension so much because uh, I always think that, uh, well, I kind of go back to uh, what's the Sharon Olds poem? Oh, do a composting toilet which is a kind of a, a funny poem, uh, mm-hmm. but then it makes the, the point later that there is like this commonality um, kind of joining everything together. And as I read that poem, I remember thinking that if you're trying to, in a way, your poems are like your little mini philosophy for life, even if you don't always adhere to that poem, it's like a little philosophy in a glass bottle. And like, if that philosophy doesn't acknowledge the presence of of awful things too, then it's 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 too elevated, you know? So for me, it's 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 kind of trying to strip it down as much as I possibly can, and have it feel honest.
1: Yeah, you know,
0: whatever yeah. that means.
1: Yeah, well, that's really clear. I mean, reading the poems. Um, so so why is it? Why do you think that not being pretentious is so important? Because I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, our little tagline for Randall is poetry without pretension, and I think that it's really important to counter that you know concept within the the culture more broadly. That poetry is this sort of navel-gazing, pretentious, you know, high in the clouds on their ivory tower type um, feeling. And yet, what we do, what both at Rattle and what you do, is try not to be pretentious and tell stories about life. So, so why is that something that you care about a lot?
0: I think it's because I, I'm kind of approaching it from that kind of that working class background. Because to me, this is, it's not about like I guess popularity. It's certainly not about money. <laughs> it really isn't any money. Uh, it, it's just about it's sort of my artistic version of like, I guess, a philosophy class, but you're not contemplating the philosophy to, um, to try and be pretentious. It's to try to figure out how to get through life. So when I write these poems about that, the one about my mom, for example, um, that's kind of a Midwest thing, I guess, but you you don't really share your emotions very much. So even though she was my mom, I literally came out of her body, but I always felt like I didn't really know her Mm -hmm. and not that she was, like hiding that, but I just, I, we just didn't communicate. So I guess that's probably where the subconscious thing in the poem came from, like trying to get to know this person and in some deeper way now that they're gone and all you really have left is your imagination. But if you want that to be as honest as you can, I think you have to strip it down as much as you can.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what did, uh, you know, coming from a working class background. I mean, what did everybody think when you started, you know, dabbling in poetry? Was that something that was surprising to everybody or was that expected, you know, they say, oh, Michael, that makes sense. Michael's writing poems now.
0: <laughs> I don't think they really batted an eyelash, actually. Because there, there's so many like like stereotypes going along with academia and and literature and art and everything. I found that the people who were the kindest about what I did and the most supportive were people who really not, weren't necessarily in academia and just, you know, wanted to wanted to support me, you know, uh, people I went to high school with, or worked with at a factory would, would hear this or that, and then go look up a poem and then, uh, say something and kind of give me a little compliment. And it was, they always included a statement like, well, I don't know much about poetry, but I just wanted to say, I, I really enjoyed that. You know, it really made me think about, you know, losing my dad or losing my wife or whatever, you know? So.
1: Mm-hmm. And what do you think about, you know, how to cut through that idea, you know, that poetry is not for me, which is the thing that's so hard. We we all love poetry here. Everybody watching this probably loves poetry and the way it helps us connect with people. And yet most people don't understand how valuable it can be and how useful and, and how much we can connect with poems and, and what they can do. Is there, is there something, you know, what has your experience been in showing poetry to people who don't usually read it?
0: Usually what I the first thing I find is everybody says, I don't know much about poetry. I don't like poetry. I think it's stupid. And usually what they're basically going add on is that moment in maybe high school to grade school where uh, they were you know, reading a Shakespearean ston- sonnet, which is, is beautiful, or a Robert Frost poem, which is beautiful and it's well done and it's genius, but it didn't quite click with their experience. And if they had, if they had seen poetry that was maybe a little bit more contemporary to their situation or background, and then later kind of reverse engineered it and saw how that evolved. From, from Shakespeare or whatever, they would have had a little more appreciation from it. Mm-hmm. I think it always goes back to me. One time I was in a bookstore, I think it was the same one I mentioned earlier, but I just overheard someone, uh, a student came up to the, the, the little storekeeper guy and it was said, hey, I gotta write a uh, essay about a poem. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And he said, well, okay, well, what you need to do is don't just grab a poem and don't just grab a book off the shelf. Look through these for a few minutes, find one that actually resonates with you. Like it, it says something to you that you don't really understand, but you just feel like you know that writer a little bit. You feel connected to it. Like mm-hmm. that's kind of the thing. So.
1: Is there a certain poem that that you think is really good to share? I, I was thinking about as you were talking. A time, you know, I was reading a book of poetry, um, an anthology, I think. Um, while I was working, um, it was at a, at a safe factory. Like adding the concrete to safe frames <laughs> was the job for a little bit of time in the summer. And somebody's like, what the hell are you doing on your lunch break reading these books? And so I read, and it was, uh, they had They Feed They Lion by uh, Phil Levine, mm-hmm. of course. And everybody, it was one of those weird, magical, almost experiences where everybody sort of, the people in the break room gathered around and I read that poem and they really for a second understood poetry, you know, and appreciated it and maybe, you know, started enjoying it more. Do you have any experiences like that? Any certain poems that you feel like resonate with, with the people around you that don't necessarily read poems?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think the first one that really connected with me, I already said, Marie Howe, uh, What the Living Do. Because if you read that book, it's extremely just stripped down, bare bones, very, very, very stark. Uh, it's not at all what you're expecting if you're coming out of a high school class, you know, which is not to knock high school teachers, but it's just kind of the way the curriculum set up. Uh, that's one example, but uh, probably my personal favorite poem is probably Suicide Song by Tony Oakland. Um, I've taught that poem in classes. Um, I've taught creative writing for 10 or so years. And I, I always included that poem and almost everyone said that was their favorite poem of the year. Mm -hmm. And we covered dozens
1: of poems. Well, let's hear another one of yours. So what do you want to read next?
0: Oh, let's do cosmology universe. Okay. After the mile wide mushroom cloud shrinks into itself, then sings upward like a tiny metal angel After ashes roil into a laughing multitude that bathes its way into clothes. After a rifle-thin boy trades his weapons for a sandwich. After bowmen catch arrows by their feathers and return each point to its cradle. After the soil rises and enters us, then wriggles out our mouths so that our bare hands can shape it into flesh. We press like clay onto bones. After spears somehow stitch the gaps and fur by kissing them. After every beast has risen and thanked its creators with just a widening of the eyes. After cells fuse and trees drink in their own leaves. All drawn tight as a seed, a fist. After fingers, after me, after you.
1: Yeah, another beautiful poem that was Cosmology in Reverse by Michael Mayerhofer. And, you know, we've seen a few poems and you mentioned already revising one way down. The theme for this week sort of is uh, revision because we have a revision prompt coming up. And uh, on the poetry space, we're talking about revision too. What is your revision process like? Because one of the things that I notice, especially in your poems, is how great your line breaks are. And that makes me always wonder if the poem was written, lineated in the way it was, or is one of the processes of revision to find the right line breaks? Because you have great use of enjambment, where it adds, you know, as you're breaking across the line, it adds a whole lot of sort of tension. You don't know sort of what's coming, and then there's that anticipation and surprise that's fulfilled, and it really propels these shorter poems forward. Is that something that you find, that you, you, you find the right shape and line length in the revision, or do they come out lineated in the way that they do? Uh,
0: both, which is a cheat answer, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, so I had a, in grad school, I had a a great teacher, Judy Jordan, who really, really, really hammered line breaks into us and just kind of taught it that, okay, yeah, you can do a longer line. You can do a prose poem. And when you do a prose poem, you you kind of sacrifice the double meanings and that pause and all that energy, but you get the energy of reading more frantically. Right. So it's just, it really just comes down to how you want to build energy in the poem. So, over many many years and you know a million awful unreadable drafts you you kind of start to think in that like three-dimensional way that sounds pretentious but it's true (laughs) you kind of think where you're going to break the line as you're writing it but that doesn't always work it blows up all the time uh so when you do that um another revision technique i'll do is the first stanza kind of shows me how the poem is going to be but sometimes it lies right? So if I, if I write that stanza and then I write the rest of the poem and it just doesn't look pretty, like it has to look good on the page, no matter what it is, uh, then I'll kind of read it out loud to myself over and over and over again. And then if I eventually decide, okay, I like the sound, but it just looks ugly and I don't like the breaks, then I'll kind of play around, you know, maybe like uh, long couplets or tercets or one a long skinny stanza or a prose poem or just, just whatever. Um, one of the things I really like to talk about when I'm, when I'm doing the vision workshops, is just really different ways to kind of turn the poem on its head, because when you write it, you know how it's supposed to be. Right. But you don't know how it's supposed to be yet. Cause it isn't finished. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard to like kill your darlings unless you really just flip everything over. So like one, one exercise I'll do sometimes is uh, this, that's somewhat inspired this poem. Um, I'll write a poem and then I'll write it in reverse. So I'll, I'll have the whole poem and then, the last line is not the first line. The penultimate line is the second line, and so on. And then tinker with the beginning and the ending words until it actually makes sense. And what's weird is that that should completely destroy the poem, but almost always the poem has some kind of similar feeling to the original. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that is because all the le- all the leaps are immediately different because you're connecting different things, but kind of the weird associations.
1: Well, that's really interesting. Did you do that with cosmology in reverse? Was it? I uh... don't. Yeah.
0: I think this one, I didn't do that. I just had that in mind, but I was, um, just kind of it. So I was just thinking of different things, watching them like on rewind. So if you watch like a battle or a hunting scene or whatever it is in reverse and like kind of what that, what that means for some reason, just watching that like stuck in my head, I I didn't know what it meant. So when I was doing the original version, it was much, much longer. And I was trying to kind of wrap it up in a neat bow about what the philosophy was. And I realized I don't consciously know. So one of the things with revision is kind of just to kind of get the hell out of the way of the poem, if at mm-hmm. all possible, and let it kind of tell me where it wants to end. Uh, and, it, and one of my rules is that it has to be something that's not too abstract. Like it has to be an image or an action or something, hopefully.
1: Do you feel like you're uh, like two people? while you're writing the poem? Do you feel like one of you, like some section of you knows what the poem should be? And the other one is sort of struggling against it? Because that's a sense that I get a lot of the times. And as you talk, I was thinking about that. You know, it's, it's like the poem is there, but then the other part of you added too much stuff and you have to like carve away at the heart of what actually you wanted to say the whole time. Is that the experience for you?
0: Kind of, yeah. I, I kind of feel like a raving mental patient and my own therapist are having a conversation in the poem in my head as, as I'm doing this. And I'm trying to figure out what to do with like whatever like trauma or uh, question or just curiosity that I'm trying to hammer through. Because a lot of times I don't even know necessarily why I'm writing the poem. It's just, it's like a, like a physical impulse, like taking a breath. Like I'll see something on the news or I see something online at a grocery store or whatever. And it's like I have to figure out a way to write about that. But I have no idea what I want to say
1: yet. <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, hammers there. And your website is Trouble with Hammers. And that's something I've always wondered. Uh, what is the, why is the URL Trouble with Hammers? How does that relate to everything that you do?
0: Oh, my buddy, Jared Sexton, uh, he's a fiction writer. Uh, we were sharing an office and I was trying to figure out my URL. And he knew that I had a poem called Trouble with Hammers that had won a contest. I, I can't remember if Bob Hickok or one of my favorite writers had, had judged it. And so that was one of the kind of like my flagship poem at the time. So he's like, why don't you just call it couple of Hammers? Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone ever gets that reference. but
1: <laughs> Well, now, now we all do. So thanks for sharing that. <laughs> um, well, let's hear another poem. Uh, what's up next? Okay. Let's see. It's
0: a little bit of a darker one. After my stepbrother gets shot and killed by cops in Milwaukee. The day after she sees her son dragged from the street like a roadkill, my stepmother returns to work. My father tries to stop her, afraid she might end up serving the same men they saw on the news Implacable Confederate statues finally granted an excuse to open their holsters. But right now she'd rather hear the cast register than her own heartbeat. And so for hours, she fills bags with sandwiches plumed in lettuce and tiny cauldrons of broth. Black forks with brittle tines, white napkins that stain so easily, pausing sometimes to dab her eyes or silence a buzzing phone. Strangers ask if she's all right. Just something I'm dealing with, she says. Then takes what they give and returns what
2: they're owed.
1: And that was a really powerful "Poet Respond" poem um, after my stepbrother gets shot and killed by cops in Milwaukee. And you know, one of the things that you do very frequently, Michael, is contribute to "Poet Respond" and write news poems. And it was you know shocking and really sad to hear you know this story touched you so personally. What was it like to you know learn this news and then? write a poem about it. Was it something, did you have any reservation, I guess, because the news was so close? That's what I wondered when we published this poem a a couple years ago.
0: Yeah, I I definitely did. Uh, But it's kind of contradictory. I had reservations about it, but I also knew that I needed to write it because I kind of didn't know what else to do. Um, I was just sitting around. I got a text message from my dad telling me what had happened. And of course, I'm freaking out. I hop online and Watch some news stories; all of them contradictory and totally contradicting what I've already heard, and and so on. And just having all that like emotion. Mm-hmm. I'm also someone who who follows. Uh, I kind of hate this phrase, but social justice issues pretty well. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, a similar thing to what I'd seen, you know, a thousand times, a million times on TV. But what you always hear is that it's not really necessarily real till it's personal, mm-hmm. and 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 the way that I felt, I think that's definitely true. I mean, it definitely hit in a different way. And I just, I didn't, I kind of sat down. And was like, I have to write something about this, but I have no idea what to say. And I felt the more I kind of, I guess, had versions where I was kind of ranting and kind of pontificating, it just kind of felt two-dimensional. I, it didn't feel respectful of the topic. So eventually what I kind of ended up doing was just kind of taking myself out of it almost. And then when my dad was telling me the story about, Uh, what my stepmom had said and done, I kind of just ended up, you know, letting her be the, be the center of the poem.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, we had a poem in Poetry Spawn, Violence Fractal uh, by Molly Fisk that I think about all the time about the way that, you know, these events spiral closer and closer and closer to home. And at this point we've had two poets as guests on the Rattlecast out of 234 episodes who've had close family members killed in interactions with police uh, which is sort of a stunning statistic. I mean, you know, if it's, you know, it's a higher acceptance rate than than most poetry magazines. Um, and it's kind of it's a shocking thing to have happen. W- was there any resolution? What came of that story? Because when he wrote the poem, it was it had just happened. Uh, was did anything come of that event? Uh, did we find out a reason, or did any was anybody disciplined, or anything like that?
0: in short no, not really mm-hmm. uh I just coincidentally uh we had the the one year anniversary of it of that happening just a few days ago. I was talking to my dad about it, and um they pursued it as as best they could and just dealt with that every day and are still dealing with it, but nothing mm-hmm. ever was really resolved um not sure what else to say without ranting, but yeah. yeah they uh there was kind of there's there's an allowance in in the law to kind of let certain people do essentially whatever they want, so long as they can say they felt scared. So yeah. that was kind of my impression of what happened.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, today of all days, because that, um, that soldier set himself on fire and the video is so stark because one of the cops, you know, everyone's running around trying to find fire extinguishers. And there's one cop holding the gun on the guy who'd set himself on fire as if he was some kind of threat. It's just incredible to see uh, you know, Susan Vespoli was the other poet we had on. We we talked about the whole Rattlecast because it happened like a week before the episode. I think that was episode 136. And it's, it's just shocking to see it happen and to see it happen over and over and over again. Um, have you written more poems about that as you help come to terms with what happened?
0: Yeah, a little bit. I, I also kind of get into trying different genres, different approaches. Um, I also did like a a long, long creative nonfiction piece that was, I think it you know 10, 15 pages or something. And then I kept reading it over and I, I wasn't happy with it. Uh, and then one quick aside, this poem was almost verbatim, a section in there that I ended up kind of tinkering with a little bit and putting breaks in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then what I ended up doing was taking that long piece and just chopping and chopping and chopping and making it, it as like as short and punchy as I could. And then, you know, uh, brevity was nice enough to take it. It's not out yet, but, um,
1: yeah, so. well, I, it brings up something I always wonder about: is would you write poems? Given how much it's they're written for yourself and to understand the the emotional and psychological issues that you're going through. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happening. We were friends on Facebook, so I've seen, you know, how much tragedy has touched you closely over the last several years would you write poems if you could never share them is is the sharing a part of it or would you write them just for yourself even if nobody else would ever read them that's one something i wonder about often too
0: yeah i would i mean definitely the goal and it sounds weird to say this without sounding like pretentious or white hero or something like that but like i do want them to be read and and you know whatever tiny little insight you know or or mistake that i can share save someone what i'm going through But to me, it is. It is also like a. On the one hand, you do write them for an audience, and you want them to be read and kind of at least on some level understood. But also, it is. It's very, very personal too. I think I'm sure I would still do it because there are so many times where something happened and I felt completely overwhelmed. And it's strange because as an artist, you tend to think of yourself as very emotional and also very intellectual, and that's all nonsense. No, that's even true. Uh, But a lot of times I feel like I don't even really understand an event until I've written a poem about it. Mm-hmm. In, in a very strange way, even if you ask me, you know, what's this poem about? I probably couldn't necessarily articulate it in a very good way. But when I'm done, I feel like I have some kind of better understanding of whatever it is, or, or maybe just acceptance of something I can't change. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, like you said, we, I, we, uh, our family had a, a long string of tragedies. Um, my, my biological brother, uh, passed away after a long illness, and then my, my stepbrother was killed right after that. Uh, my grandmother, I was very close to, died shortly before that. So,
1: yeah. yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of, um. there's a quote, which I have no idea who said it, because I've heard it from th- like three separate people, and they all say it was a different Nobel Prize winner. But a Nobel Prize in Literature winner was supposedly said, maybe apocry- apocryphal, that, um. you know, what do you think about winning the Nobel Prize in Literature? And they said, well, I don't know, I haven't written about it yet. And I think, you know, that really applies on so many levels, whether or not that's true and never happened. Um, uh, so, well, I think we need to read another poem because it's been a bit. So let's read uh, whatever you want next.
0: Sure. I'll put it on the list here. Uh, the next one, uh, another one you were kind enough to give a home. Uh, climate protesters throw soup over Van Gogh's sunflowers. For hours, I've been arguing with a friend who believes teachers are on a crusade to make children use litter boxes. When I hear about sunflowers bathed in soup to protest the use of fossil fuels. Last night, I kept picturing my brother's gaze before he died. Like he could see the whole hospital ward melting, wavelengths collapsing into pinheads, the way time does when you fly fast enough. I don't know how to keep you safe. Turns out Van Gogh made several paintings of sunflowers and pale vases, petals drooping like golden rain, like he felt he'd missed something. Sometimes it's easy to forget what the earth makes of our bones, way down deep in vaults that never get locked. One day, there will be no one left to explain how clay yields yellow ochre and a hair of wild beasts can be bristled into brushwork. How dust can be squeezed into stars.
1: Yeah, another beautiful poem. Another poet respond poem. Um, you know, you've won. You know, both the ekphrastic challenge um, multiple times. I think if I remember right, and then you know, poets respond. You've been in several times too. What would your advice be to uh, writing a good poem about current events? Because it is a different genre. That that's yeah. you know being tied to the circumstances in the moment makes the poem different in a lot of ways. How do you approach making a poet respond type poem be a good poem still even though you have a lot of you know thoughts and reactions that might not make a good poem?
0: Well, first of all, I think this is why I have so much appreciation for poets respond like it really is a great thing uh, because people like me, you know dorks like me are always writing about current events but uh, like you say in the in the guidelines for that, if you send it out, how long is it going to be? Even if you get an acceptance, how long is it going to be till it comes out? Uh, you know, six months, a year by then. There's a certain like immediacy to talking about current events, but the problem is you have to kind of uh, I guess kind of watch where your emotions are coming from, because the temptation is always to make the poem two dimensional because you're 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 angry. That's like I used to always tell my students. You know, when you're when you're sending an email to your professor and you're angry, it's going to sound like you're angry because you have kind of tunnel vision. And so having that extra dimension is really, really tough with current events. But I think it's extremely helpful, like to help you kind of understand it as best you can. Um, The way I try to do that, it's not really a a hard and fast thing, but I try to just let, again, it sounds cheesy, but let the poem tell me how it wants to end. Um, So I I remember I was writing a Rick Santorum poem (laughs) way, way, way back when. And he's not somebody I care for. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and I was, uh, writing the poem and I was like, okay, it can't just be a hit job. I can't just make fun of this guy because then there's nothing else to it. Uh, and I, I'd stumbled across some story that was that of something he'd done that was kind of scary, but also weirdly sweet and, and trying to kind of put a little bit of extra dimension on that, even if I didn't really want to do it, I think. Mm. But another thing, and this kind of goes with, uh, um, I remember when I was teaching one time and I was talking to a student and he'd written a nine eleven poem. And and it was kind of what you would expect for a 9-11 poem. And then I was talking to him, and I said, well, tell me your 9-11 story. Where, where were you? Well, no, I was in Indiana. Okay, well, what happened? And then he told me the story that wasn't in the poem at all, but how he had gone to school when he was a little kid, and he had gone to school late that day because he was sick. So he had seen what happened on the news, and then he went to school, and then uh, he told everybody there what happened. And his teacher happened to have a son who worked in the towers. She So she's burst into tears and ran out. And then all the other kids were yelling at the student saying, why did you make the teacher cry? Mm -hmm. So that was his nine 11 experience. Right. And when I thought, when I, when he told me that I I was like, that has to be the poem. Even if you don't know what that means that that that's, that's your personal involvement in it. So I think it's like trying to find your personal connection or, and, or kind of be, being willing to take yourself out of it. You know, like, like we, maybe we don't need to hear the, the, author's, the narrator's opinion. Maybe we just need to let, let, let the story go to another character.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it, that bringing in the personal is really the key to it. Do you ever think about, you know, when you write poems like that, do you ever think about making sure that it lives more than just in the moment? That's one of the things I feel a little bit bad about. That there are a lot of poems that are interesting and, and well-written poems that that almost only work in that one week where the thing is in the news. As you write a poetry respond type poem, do you think about making it have longevity even if it's you know not published right away or do you just ignore it and let whatever comes out come out
0: again yes to both kind of <laughs> um, I, I do kind of think about that I think one way around that is if you uh, let the poem kind of do its own thing so so for that one uh, it was it was all the different things I was I actually was thinking about at the time that happened and so if you kind of just turn the camera on yourself without having to be on yourself. Like these are the things I'm dealing with or thinking about, even if they seem random. And then you have a bunch of, you know, seemingly random things, then you whittle it back, whittle it back. to things that kind of seem significant when one way or another, mm-hmm. and then beyond that is not, you know, it's impossible to say, you know, what poem will connect, you know, a month from now, let alone, you know, 10 years from now. So you kind of just have to write, I think with that in mind and try to, Uh, avoid that that pretension and avoid that despair right but also be will be willing to kind of put that aside and just say okay i'm just you know ultimately yeah this is meaningless because it's all meaningless but that's not a big deal it's fine
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i love you know that that sort of fallback that it's all meaningless which makes everything meaningful because what else would there be (laughs) you know so the fact that no one's going to read the poem no matter what you write In the hundred years or a thousand years or no matter how, you know, as far out you go, there's a point at which no one's going to ever have heard of your poem, no matter how great the poem is. And in a way, if you pull back far enough on that, it all collapses into everything being so meaningful in this moment that we should all be doing everything right now. So I love that concept. Um, Let's hear another poem. Uh, I want to make sure we get a good number in. Uh, Do you want to do last day on the factory floor? Sure. Sure.
0: I did, I had a lot of factory jobs. Uh, This is one of the scarier ones. Last day on the factory floor. The summer after my mom died, I returned home from college to that empty house in nowhere, Iowa. It's bleached white ceilings and sagging clotheslines, just a few rap songs from the refrigerator factory where I spent all day getting bitten by mosquitoes who exhibited a special fondness for my place on the line. Thanks to the drains of leaky hoses by my feet. We were warned not to complain. Plenty more temps they could call. Warned too, to avoid the break room with this jailhouse camera swiveling right outside the boss's office, his speakers playing only country. I remember old men missing fingers, a forklift operator drunk by noon, the groan and clatter of pallets stacked high enough to strum the nerves guys who gave bad instructions just so you'd have to redo everything while they flexed and laughed, like high school kids who will never grow older, never need to learn about the price of caskets. But most of all, I remember the elation of those final moments when it no longer mattered if I missed my quota, if I turned the water hose on my co-workers and sauntered off when the boss descended from on high and demanded the name of the culprit his pen drawn like a dagger, even the full-timers scattering.
1: And that was last day on the factory floor. Um, you mentioned working a lot of factory jobs. Um, do you find, you know, and now I think, right, you teach is your main source of income. Uh, do I understand that right?
0: I, I was actually teaching uh, adjuncting right up until the pandemic, and now I'm actually working in marketing editing.
1: <laughs> well, that's interesting. Something
0: very different, yeah. So, yeah I so also those do are workshops three... here and there.
1: Yeah. Those are three very different jobs. And when I was doing more, you know, blue collar stuff, I was, um, you know, I worked in some factories over the summer, like at Kodak, um, a couple summers and I worked at a group home and I did some landscaping for a while. I felt that those were the times when I was doing other things that the poetry felt the most vibrant or or maybe necessary is a better word. And then once I started being a poetry editor, it became less necessary in a way. Do do you find that once you left those jobs where your attention was focused on different things, more physical in space concerns, do you find that, that the poetry was better in a way at that point, or do you still get back there just as easily?
0: I think so in a weird way. It's kind of hard to explain. It's kind of like you, you, you cherish a relationship or a loved one most after they're gone Right, like I remember uh, working in this factory, uh, and this is one of the main memories in the poem. Where I was working in this giant, giant, massive warehouse, and everybody was just miserable, and it was just like quiet desperation. And they weren't bad people; it was just uh, the boss was a jerk, and everybody was making you know, a horrible salary, and it was just like this culture at that particular place of everybody backstabbing. And but you know, underneath all that was just a lot of loneliness. I remember kind of feeling this strange like ache or this, this mm-hmm. weird desperation of loneliness as I was in the factory. And I, I think I was like writing, little scrubbing little bad poems on napkins. And that, that was kind of my escape. Uh, but that's like that's kind of when that need was the most. And then when the need is the most, that's when you kind of appreciate that ladder out of it, I think.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And maybe the most important thing that poetry does these days, because there's so much loneliness in the way that we live our lives now. You know, we evolved and we're meant to live in tribes of 150 people where you know every single human being you've ever seen and, and have this complex interactions where your life depends on this group of people that you actually know. And now we hardly know anybody. I mean, I wave to my neighbors. I, you know, I try to remember their names, but I don't. And, uh, you know, in a factory, there's sort of a camaraderie always between certain, you know, a few people I've always found. But then outside of that, you feel very isolated, too, as somebody who, you know, thinks a lot and reads a lot, and, you know. And so I don't, is poetry a cure for loneliness? Is that one of the main driving forces that, that bring you there?
0: I'm not sure it's a secure. Um, I kind of think it is, but I'm not positive. Mm-hmm. I think it kind of Is more of like a microscope that helps you understand the dimensions of the loneliness. Like it kind of zooms in on it. And then when you understand it, you can, it doesn't necessarily cure it, but you can understand it better. Mm -hmm. It's like if if you're struggling with a massive childhood trauma and you go to therapy, the therapy doesn't make the trauma go away. It doesn't necessarily make the feelings go away, but you understand it better. So you're a little bit more in control, I think. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's the point I should say. If anybody has any questions for Michael, I'll leave them in the chat windows on Facebook or YouTube. Those are the two I pay attention to. So if you want to ask him anything, just leave a question. If you put bold question there, it helps a lot, too, so I can see it. Uh, and also, I should say, too, at this point, uh, please do click the Like button if you haven't yet. You know, There are a whole bunch more people watching that have clicked Like right now, and that really helps. You know, every time I say that, I'm sorry I have to say it. But if I do, you know, we get more likes and then you get more random people passing by experiencing poetry. So please do click the like button if you haven't yet. And, of course, if you're watching this later on a podcast version or you have podcast catchers, follow it there, too. Uh, but in the meantime, let's hear another poem. Michael, what do you oh, want to read next?
0: I got a couple of angry texts to make sure I, I include this one. So I'll go with my last one. Uh, oh, the dog's next. Okay. Ode to dogs. I am tired of hearing about dogs used as metaphors for the uncivilized. Imagine a world in which humans possess at least 20 times as many olfactory receptors, able to distinguish the tang of cancer, rising musk-like from the bedsheets next to a smoldering ashtray, able to detect that one drop of blood at every five quarts of water, to know what you did last night, no matter how many times you soap scrub the evidence. It does not take savagery, but more love than we can muster to lick the hand you've sniffed, to love despite the perfume of sins we wear each day like a halo.
1: Yeah, that was Ode to Dogs. Another beautiful ending, Michael. And many people in the chat have mentioned how great the endings of all these poems are. Do you have any advice to poets about how to find a great ending? Because I think it's something that you're def- definitely expert at. I
0: don't know about that, but I, don't, I, I respond to compliments by trying to run away and hide under my bed. So <laughs> I'll, I'll work on that. Um, I think part of what did it is being, what helped me get better at it was being really, really, really bad at it. Because uh, I remember when I first started taking workshops and first started writing, I kind of looked at poems, like I said earlier, as like a little mini philosophy or something. Yeah. Uh, the problem was, I was sort of like white knuckling the poem, and I was like, You must get this interpretation. You must see it this way. And they were just boring. <laughs> like they were just flat and joyless poems. And then what I gradually started doing, especially as I got more into like uh, quote unquote Zen poetry and, and Eastern poetry. Was uh, being willing to kind of switch part of your brain off and just let the poem do its thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, kind of in the back of my mind, when I'm writing and I come across uh, uh, what feels like a a punchy image or an action that just kind of falls from the sky and it's in the poem, I'm always kind of thinking in the back of my mind, is this where it should end? Okay, how about here? How about here? How about here? And then try to get off the stage as fast as possible. Right. <laughs> Just keep keep it short and sweet and, and focus on your imagery as much as you can.
1: Yeah, I always think about it as like a freeway exit, you know? And uh, and I always worry that that I'm taking an exit ramp that I that I could have kept going, you know? And i and I'm worried I always worry this is why I can't be a fiction writer. And I, I'm curious about that too, as somebody who writes fantasy novels. But I feel like I have to write poetry because I always want to take the first great exit ramp that I see instead of continuing down the freeway. Do you ever worry about that with poems, that you feel a great ending, and then the poem could have gone farther, but you took the, the nice, you know easy way maybe off of the freeway?
0: Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Um, so I Just coincidentally, a few days ago, I was, I was looking at some older poems and other books and kind of comparing it to mine and, or what I'm writing right now. And kind of realizing that over the years, the poems keep getting shorter and shorter and shorter. (laughs) Uh, Like I remember in grad school, I'd write like these two, three page long narrative poems. And just they felt a little bit different. Whereas now I kind of feel like I'm, I'm compressing things a little bit more. I don't know if it's necessarily bad or good. It's just kind of what feels like the right way to do it to me. So I think your style, like everybody's style shifts over the years. And then you can kind of stand in the road and try and stop it, but it won't work. So you have to just go with
2: it. So.
1: Yeah, well, that's a great, a great piece of advice, I think. Um, so uh, Jimmy Pappas asks, uh, does Michael have a poem about his medieval weapons collection? And why do you have a medieval weapons collection? <laughs> and that's something that I wanted to ask about, too. You know, What is it about that, that history and weapons uh, that, that interests you? I think
0: when I was a kid, um, my, my dad got me Lord of the Rings. And I started reading that, and it was, it was, I enjoyed the stories, but it was also like a kind of a bonding thing. And then from there, it just kind of uh, went from there. I started reading like Dungeons and Dragons books and just whatever I could find. And then um, I didn't always feel super close to my mom. We didn't always, we weren't enemies, but we didn't always communicate in the best way or didn't communicate very much. But she was very, very supportive of my reading and my writing. So she, even though she didn't, wasn't really into sci fi fantasy at all. She'd go to the library and look for just stacks of books that I might like and bring them home and I would would outread them. I just kind of go from there. And that's kind of where my interest grew from there. Um, But no, I haven't read a poem about it yet somehow.
1: That's really interesting. Uh, Why don't you think you have? Is there a way that certain things are compartmentalized? I, I noticed, you know, you said you have a deep interest in history, too. And I, you know, I know the fantasy novels sort of incorporate that, I imagine, uh, but, but I haven't noticed a lot of historical-based poems either. Is there a way that poetry is for a certain thing and other interests are for other things, or is there not a lot of cross-pollination?
0: That's a fair question. Um, somehow it's just never really come up. I mean, so with, with, uh, with the history uh, of the different tactics and battles and weapons and different types of, of metals and all, all these kind of things and the benefits and all that, um, I, I studied that a lot, and that, that would find its way into the stories. kind of research that was fun to do anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't really it just kind of hasn't come up yet that I've I've had to plug that into a poem for whatever reason.
1: Yeah I took a class in the history of the English language and I remember it being explained by the professor who I wish I could remember their name Uh, but but as it being shocking how much weaponry played into the actual way that we speak. It was almost like the summary of the class because you have, like, you know, the Vikings came with their huge battle axes and no one could approach them, and then they invented the... You know the catapult or archery got better, and so they could repel the Vikings, and then so we get these influxes of different languages and then the French came in with their weaponry tools and added all of our uh, you know French language, you know like the different words that we use, like venison and things like that uh, and so you know we, we sort of forget how much those things play into who we are today, unless you 're someone who's really interested in history. What is it that draws you to history <sighs> Let me see.
0: I guess I've always had an idea, and this sounds obvious, but you should learn from your mistakes as best you can. <laughs> I try to learn from mine. I learn very, very slowly, but I think that applies to history too. Um, I mean, there's all the kind of cliched phrases, you know, those who don't learn from the past, I do them to repeat it, et cetera. But I think if you want to understand like social justice and current events and, and mental health and just everything there is like there are all kinds of different lenses that can help you do that. And for me, one of them is, is history. Like how has this or that shifted over the years? Why did we start doing it this way? Not that way. Uh, what does that say about the human spirit? Is there, is there some lesson that you can learn in some small way that can help?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we have time for about two more poems, I think. So let's uh, do a poem, a little bit more talk and then one more poem. Um, so what, what do you want to read for your penultimate piece today?
0: Uh, let's do A weird one. uh, The Shapeshifter and Therapy for Survivors guilt. Okay. First time I saw her, she was crying in a pharmacy. I transformed into a puppy and licked her ankles. She kicked me, pointed out the absence of consent, and threatened to call the cops. True, she had a point. But later, when I became a scattering of rose petals across her windshield... I thought I saw her smile before she turned the wipers on. It was tough, spelling out my apology in the clouds. I never stretched myself that far, but I meant it. That Friday, I let her ride me through the park, then became a butterfly and kissed her forehead. She texted later, said she was lonely, but she didn't want to rush things. So I became the rain and pattered off the eaves until she fell asleep. Soon, she started to have fun with it. Show me a baby goat, a pterodactyl, a giraffe with flippers. She even made videos for her family, her playing badminton with Virginia Woolf, cooking a grilled cheese with Abraham Lincoln. I started to wonder why she never asked to see my true self. Sometimes lying next to her, I change back and wait for her to wake up and run away screaming. Every time she stirred, though, I'd become a quilt that smelled like her favorite perfume. But it turns out she liked me best as water. Days she didn't want to talk, I just filled the bathtub and let her soak in me, flowing over her scars like I was pouring down the rungs of a ladder.
1: Yeah, another great poem with a great ending. I mean, it really, you know, people were mentioning it the whole episode. But your endings just are top notch, Michael. Oh. And, and that one brings in some fantasy elements, too, for the first time. What can you tell us about being a fantasy author as well? You have two trilogies under your belt. How does that relate to poetry writing? Uh, is, there, is there a lot? Of, you, you said earlier that there's a similarity between the two. It's sort of, in a way, all the same thing. But how so? They seem so different.
0: Well, I remember uh, when I was in grad school, one of the things we would do, we would have like the poets would have fiction writers come in and do a guest lecture and vice versa. And then and then uh, every once in a while, someone would say, "Okay, well, what can poetry do for my fiction? What can fiction do for my poetry? And uh, there really isn't, you know, there's all kinds of answers for that. So like what can what can poetry do for your fiction? It can add, you know, it gives you a little more focus on imagery, uh, on music and sound. You know, and what can fiction do? Well, you have to get the person from the couch to the table. You have to have that continuity um, and kind of have your, your your narrative and kind of think of how your audience is going to see this and perceive it. Will they get it? Will they get it enough? Yes or no? Kind of go back from there. Uh, so for me, they're just kind of again just different ways of approaching a different thing. Um, and then it's plus it's just fun. <laughs> uh, when, when I was when I was uh, I think twenty twenty one. 22, I guess. Uh, I, was, I was already familiar with Raymond Ray Carver's stories, but I didn't know he wrote poems. And I, I found uh, his collected poems and I was reading it and I was just blown away. I just love the poems. I just never really heard of them too much. So I, I found that uh, a lot of times I'm, I'm drawn to fiction writers who dabble in poetry or poets who dabble in fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not to say that you have to do that, but I think it kind of gives you different ways to look at the same problem.
1: Yeah, and what is your experience in the reception of the two different genres? Do you feel like you have more fans in the one or the other? And is there cross-pollination between the two? Does one, I mean, it's, it seems I assume that the novels sell better than poetry books, but I don't want to assume. <laughs> so <laughs> what is your experience, uh, you know, in the difference between who's actually reading the the books?
0: So there, is, there is like uh, a lot of overlap, more than you would think, but not as much as you'd like uh i i remember i got a one day i i had been told like how many fantasy copies i'd sold that month and it wasn't a, a fortune but it was it was a decent number and i also got a, a royalty check from a, a poetry press for all the poetry books i would sold for that year <laughs> and then there were more fiction copies in the month than in in, in a whole year for the poetry book mm-hmm. but that's just kind of the way it is so yeah you, you have to just kind of accept your audience and go from there
1: yeah, why do you think that's the way it is, though? I mean, as someone who loves both, why why is fiction so much easier to sell to a reader than poetry?
0: I think it's because of how, how poetry is taught, and that's—I don't mean that as a knock against teachers. It's—it's it's, it's more of a, a societal thing, just in like our American culture. You don't really read a whole lot of poetry growing up, and what you do read is like the "quote-unquote" safe stuff. I don't mean that it's safe. Poetry—it's just you know as edgy and provocative as anything else. It's just that it's been kind of sanitized in the eyes of society. Like mm-hmm. no one, no—in other words, parents aren't going to complain about Robert Frost, but they might complain about a Sharon Olds poem, mm-hmm. right? Because they, they, you know. Uh, so I think over time, you know, even teachers who really, really, really want to broaden their students' minds, the complaints come in. It gets difficult, and then you just sort of gradually kind of whittle it down. And before long, you have more and more young people who, you know, go into their, grow up and go off to college. And maybe they didn't even know that there was such a thing as contemporary poetry, mm-hmm. you know, so.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. I always think about that because it's sort of, it's not taught as if it's subversive. You know, it's taught as if it's something that you're supposed to, you know, be forced to take like your vitamins. Like this is something that you need to do to pass seventh grade English and you have to memorize a poem and it's some kind of chore that will edify you rather than something i often wonder if um if poetry would do better if we didn't teach it at all in school and just let people find it on their own and say hey what the hell is going on here <laughs> and find their own way um do, do you think that do you think it's that bad the, the way that it's taught and and how could we change it do you think do you think there's a possibility of poetry being taught in a better way moving forward i think
0: i th- think so I'm not sure what that way is but uh, as you were saying that I, I kept flashing back to that that Tony Hogan poem suicide song and just the looks on the on the students faces when they see that poem for the first time mm-hmm. and like the impact it can make so I think it's it's a matter of you know yeah you want to show respect to all the generations of just these literary titans that came before us but maybe reverse it you know give give contemporary stuff that a young audience can relate to a little bit more and then, again, kind of reverse engineer it and see how this led to that, which led to that, and so on. Uh, for example, like if you were to introduce uh, uh, a kid uh, to, to movies, would you start with you know movies from the 1940s? Would you start with Citizen Kane or something like that? Or, or would you start with something more contemporary, and then kind of work your way back? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you wouldn't necessarily give them uh, uh, a vintage classic right away necessarily you kind of build up to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Let's do two quick questions from the audience. Uh, so Jamie Thomas says, uh, do you ever propose to write about a topic or do you always feel, uh, or sorry, do you ever purpose to write about a topic or do you always feel led to one? I would like to understand how deliberate your process is or whether it's more inspiration driven.
0: Um, it's kind of both in a weird way. So when I when I hear something, when when something happens, or I hear something in the news, or whatever, something clicks. You know, it, it's like if you have to hiccup and then you hiccup. I have, I have to write a poem, and I sit down and write a poem. I just have to do it. Uh, and then I think early on when I started doing that, uh, before I would actually sit down and write, I would, I would be like, okay, what is the message I want to share with the audience? Which is the surest way to kill a poem, uh, because you you'll, you'll try to to force meaning into there. But by the time you, you start here and here, that line or that meaning may not fit anymore. So it's kind of like uh, feeling and I know it sounds kind of woo woo and flowery, but I think it's true. Like when you when you feel an impulse to write about something, that impulse is telling you how to do it, mm-hmm. uh, except it's not going to tell you in language because that's not how your brain necessarily works. It's just going to kind of put you in the situation and then kind of be open to where it's leading you.
1: Yeah. As a follow-up to that, those poems that you did where you were swapping the word poetry um, for other words, like past, I think we did three, uh, pasteurization, virginity, and maybe another one. But then, you know, defining defining things as if it were poetry in this really fun way that it really seemed like you were having a lot of fun with those. How many did you end up doing? And did they end up in a book anywhere?
0: Oh, I did tons of those. It was It was bizarre because Sometimes I write pretty quickly, usually at more like a medium pace. Uh, Mm -hmm. But for those that I just, they just came out of me really fast and Mm -hmm. i was still working on them a long time, but they just one after another, after another, it was like a floodgate. Um, I think I ended up doing probably 40 or 50 of them. Um, They weren't all, they weren't all good, obviously. Uh, And I published quite a few of them and then I actually have never put those in a book yet. Um, They've been, I've tried a few different things, Uh, a whole manuscript of those. Seem like maybe a little bit too much, but I've tried that as a section in, a, in forthcoming manuscripts I'm sending out.
1: That's is there Maybe a chapbook too. That might be fun. Yeah. yeah uh, one, that'd be good. one last quick question. Trishan says, uh, "Are there any subjects you just won't touch?"
3: No.
0: No. Almost as seriously, like as a rule, uh, mm-hmm. I think that because I think if you give yourself that rule, that's a massive weight around your neck, and it'll it'll really prevent you from writing. Uh, another way to think about this is that I, I would always tell my students, you know, part of the when I would talk to them about the writing, it almost feels like therapy in a way, because what I'm trying to do is put them at ease with writing and, and then help us, help them as much as I can, but also figure out, okay, what's your, you know, what's holding you back? There's something holding you back. Something's clouding up your lens. There, there's something you need to write about that you're maybe not writing about yet. And until you kind of force yourself to do that, it's it's hard to go past that because most of your energy is spent trying to not deal with another thing i think Mm -hmm. so i think and then if it's a controversial subject uh, of which there are you know plenty uh then i think a way to write about that is always is to kind of say well it's fair to ask yourself like what right do i have to write about this that could be the subject of the poem Mm -hmm. you know this happens and this is how i feel about it but i'm wondering hey maybe i shouldn't write about this or well, people say that can be the, you know, that thought process could be the subject.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting, almost surprising <laughs> reply. And I think really an important one too. You know, if, if there's something that you feel like you shouldn't write about, that might be a sign that you should. And so you could think about that way too. Uh, well, we're, we're up on time. Let's finish out with one last poem. Sure,
0: I'll finish with a short one. This is Dear Daughter. I know you don't exist. But say we were halfway back from seeing a friend in a bullet-smooth casket, and you asked what to expect if there really is no God. No passing like water mouth to mouth. And I told you in the car between one tree-named sign and the next, the worst-case scenario. When we die, we pass into nothingness. That same shapeless garden from whence you came, Like the darkness in a vase we filled with milk and light. Or, put it another way, I'm not afraid of being eaten by whatever gave us you.
1: Yeah, beautiful poem. That's Dear Daughter by Michael Mayerhofer. Michael, thanks so much for being a guest. It's been so fun sharing your poems and thoughts. Uh, I really always have loved your work. It's great. Every time I get to know you a little bit better, it's always a good time. Thanks for being here.
0: Thanks, guys. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it.
1: Yep, take care. There's a Michael Mayerhofer. You can find his website and all of his books, both his uh, two trilogies of fantasy novels and also so many chapbooks, five books of poetry, including uh, the, the one that was just re-released. It's a free download. So What to Do If You're Buried Alive is the title poem, which we heard first, to a book called What to Do If You're Buried Alive that was re-released as a free online ebook. So all you have to do is go to TroubleWithHammers.com, find the book there, download it, and read the whole thing. Really wonderful thing for Michael to do and in the, in the publisher that did that. So um, go to TroubleWithHammers.com for so much more of Michael Mayerhofer's work. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our bonus uh, special guest. We have Zilka Joseph here. She was on Roundcast number 131 and has a new book. It's always fun to bring poets back when they have something new. So sit tight, and I'll be right back with uh, more poetry and uh, Zilka Joseph. And we're back. Now, like I said, Zilka Joseph was on Rattlecast number 131. And we talked a lot about this really interesting uh, Jewish diaspora in India. And she has a whole book about it now. Uh, but let me read it by first. Zilka Joseph was awarded a Zell Fellowship and the Elsie Choi Lee Scholarship from the University of Michigan. Um, and we talked about her most recent book last time, In Our Beautiful Bones. But now she has this new wonderful book, Sweet Matilda. You can find all of Zilka's work, of course, at her website, zilkajoseph.com. And here she is again, Zilka. Hey, Zilka, how you doing? Hi,
4: Tim. Wonderful to be back with you. Nice to see you. Yeah, it's so great to have you back. I mean,
1: this is one of the things I had no idea that there was an entire Jewish settlement going on in India, you know, hundreds of years ago. And it so it's really interesting to see this book uh, coming out that goes into that in more detail. We talked about it, you know, I think it was about two years ago that you were right. on before. Before we talk more about the book, why don't you start out with uh, that title poem? I think it'd be a great way to go.
4: Sure, I I would love to. Um, just a quick correction, Tim. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, sweet malida. Oh, malida. Okay. Malida. I know because I you always think of Matilda. Oh, somebody said Malinda, so I know it's very similar. So, uh, sweet malida. Malida is this dish that is uh, very popular among the Israel. Sweet malida a mix of water softened flattened rice sugar dried fruits and nuts was a dish made for shabbat or for breaking our fast cooling light on the palate and to the body and the spirit it was welcome in the heat of day or night we had many foods in common with our muslim christian and hindu neighbors and we often celebrated together, their festival or ours. I relished particularly fresh coconut, the regional staple, its milk or its flesh added to almost every dish. But this was to me the best way to eat it, finely grated by my mother's hands, left unsweetened and sprinkled haphazardly on the malida, juicy threads with a fleck of stubborn brown kernel here and there that sometimes crunched in your teeth like sand, and you winced and you swallowed it, knowing that there was no simpler or purer or truer form than that.
1: Yeah, beautiful poem to start with. That was Sweet Melita. The title poem to the book. And so how, how did that how did the book come together and why did you decide to call it that? Why was that the title poem?
4: Um you probably know I write a lot about food, Tim. <laughs> if you remember my last book, there was a theme of food running through that as well with, with political undertones and overtones. Uh this book is really it's it, it's it's all about storytelling. And I had a collection of, collection meaning, you know, I'd begun to save a lot of the food poems I'd begun, I'd I'd been writing. And I had a whole set of poems that were about Ben Israel dishes. Mm -hmm. And it had been published in a journal called Rasa which is an imprint of Whetstone magazine. Do you know, uh, if you heard of uh, Stephen Saterfield, who did High on the Hog, Mm -hmm. that documentary? So he's the founder of that journal. And uh, they were coming out with this print uh, journal for the very first time on South Asian food and uh, i had sent them some some short pieces and they liked them and they said would you send us some more so about four or five poems were published in that and then i had a couple of other short pieces like the prose pieces you might have read in this book the ladu makers um, our cup run it over about the raisins so that that sort of began this collection and then because there were so many stories around those foods And the history of those foods, then slowly that that just started developing in this very organic way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, where did this food come from and how did this food develop and who were these people? And, you know, well, they came to India, they were shipwrecked on the west coast of India in 175 BCE, you know, Mm -hmm. so they're truly Indian Jews. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was just an amazing story. And it's, it's interesting, too, your, your interest in food writing. I've heard it said that food writing is the most difficult form of writing because we all have so many experiences with food that there's so much cliché. It's so hard to write originally about food. Is that part of what draws you to it, the, the challenge of it?
4: Actually, I've never even thought about it that way. its I think it, it's just so... It's just that I love food and I love food knowledge and history and anthropology. I think these things just sort of percolate in my head. And then you know, it's like I'm recreating that dish. So it's a very sensual sort of uh, experience, actually, putting it uh, down on paper as well. So I, I just think it's it's very much part of who I am. So I don't really think about it that much. Those ideas just come and then I'm describing the dish or I'm giving it the association with, you know, the biblical times or uh, with the prophet Elijah, as you see in this book, because Malida is made for, um, you know, the Thanksgiving ceremony for prophet Elijah. So the, there's so many interesting things that come together when I'm talking about or writing about food. Food is just like one component of it. Mm hmm. So again, I think it's it's something that I'm attracted to, the storytelling aspect of it.
1: Yeah, well it seems to me like such a great entryway. You know, we were we talked so much and even just with Michael earlier we were talking about how, you know, poetry should be more accessible to regular people that don't read poetry mm-hmm. all the time. And so mm-hmm. having the the different food Mm -hmm. items in the history, you know, be a way to, to tell the stories that you're trying to share through the food. Seems like it's a great idea for making poetry something that's more interesting to the regular reader that doesn't usually read poetry. Is that something that you had in mind when putting this book together?
4: I think as the book developed, I realized how the storytelling aspect along with the, you know, culinary history um as well as my story could be very nicely blended into um a, a more like um, tapestry of stories and again you know it's very hard to draw people into poetry those who are you know don't read it or not interested or afraid of it so i'm i'm i hope that this book will draw more more readers in um and one of the things I'm also very hopeful of is that food journals and food po- podcasts get curious about my work mm-hmm. because that would be a wonderful way for the world to also learn about the Ben Israel of India. Mm-hmm. That you know, we don't hear about them much. Most people don't know about them. So I'm hoping, and all you know, whatever attracts the reader will draw them into the history of this ancient uh, community.
1: Yeah, I, I, that was so fascinating. You know, I you know, it sounds maybe arrogant or something, but I've I've read so many poems that you'd think you'd I've heard of like almost everything, and this is something that I didn't know about. So when you were on last time and reading your your earlier books. Um, I was really surprised to learn that you know that, that Israelites went to India that early. It was just
4: and, something. and yeah. even before they were called Israelites, there mm-hmm. was no India and there was no Israel or Palestine. There was whatever Judea or whatever it was back in the day. And uh, that's why it's so fascinating, because it's uh, this community is so old and lived in the villages of India for so long, and we were only discovered in the 17th or 18th century by Christian uh, missionaries. And then slowly more people began to know about them and they came to test them because they weren't sure really who they were.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: But they had uh, knowledge of of uh, some of the basic tenets of Judaism, which i write about in some of the poems. Um, and uh, that's how they, they, the outside world began to learn about them.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: But India is actually home to three ancient communities. Of course, the Ben Israel uh being the most ancient uh, but there are two newer uh branches of Jews that have been found in two different parts of India mm-hmm. and they're the uh, Ben Ephraim and the Ben Manashe and of course the Baghdadi Jews uh, came with the trade routes so Bombay Calcutta all the way to the southeast asia you have the trade uh with the with the Jewish uh with the Baghdadi Jewish uh, traders Mm -hmm. and um, many of the large buildings and uh, synagogues built in Bombay and Calcutta uh, were built by the uh, Baghdadi Jews.
1: Mm
4: -hmm. And then in the south, Kerala, we have the Cochin Jews.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's such a fascinating story and just a great way to share it through both poetry and food. Do you want to read another poem to close it out? Uh, Pantum uh, for Chikcha Hawa. Sure.
4: Yes. I, I would like to read this because it does uh, have a little bit of the history in it. And and of course, there's facts, there's history, but there's also a lot of imagination at play in this book. So I begin to imagine what it might have been like for these people to adapt to Indian ways, learn their food ways. And then recreate, halva is universal almost, some form of it or other. So the Middle East, Greece, Turkey, I mean, you name it, they all have their types of halwa. India has like a million types of halwa. So what halwa did the survivors know? And then how did this coconut-based halwa develop mm-hmm. for these people? So that, that was fascinating to me. And it, it's a lot of hard work to make this, this squeeze the juice out of this soaked wheat. Uh, Pantum for chick cha halwa. Halwa is made for festivals and special occasions. Whose hands worked hard to make this halwa? Whose hands soaked the mounds of wheat? How we waited three days and nights. How chick was extracted from grain. Whose hands soaked the mounds of wheat Knew each step of the recipe How to squeeze the cheek from grain To slowly boil the thick beads of juice Did they learn each step of the recipe From a new culture, from a new land To slowly boil the thick beads of juice Did they miss loved ones left behind From a new culture, from a new land, did they taste their ancestors' food? Did they miss loved ones left behind? Those lost in the deluge, shipwrecked. Did their tongues taste their ancestors' food? Was this so different from sweets of home? Those lost in the deluge and wreck would never come back to life so very different from sweets of home. Sugar, coconut milk, colored pink, thickening. Those lost in the deluge, shipwrecked. Would their spirits whisper old recipes? Sugar, rose-tinted, coconut milk, thickening. Tired arms, bated breath, silky cubes cooling. Do spirits whisper old recipes in a new land, new life, new history? Tired arms, bated breath, silky cubes cooling, sprinkled with poppy seed and slivered nuts. New land, new life, new history, food and ways you made your own, sprinkled with poppy seed slivered nuts how we waited how we waited the food and ways you made your own your hands working hard to make this halva.
1: yeah another beautiful pantoum that was a uh, pantoum for chikcha cha and that is from the uh, new book by zilka joseph sweet melita memories of a bene israeli woman uh, thanks so much for being here uh, and joining us again, Zilka. It's really a pleasure. And so Thank you just so much.
4: I'm, I'm, yeah. so, I'm so grateful that you had me back on your show, and I wish you all the best. You do amazing work. Thank yeah. you.
1: Well, thanks so much. And same here. And I hope the, the book sells really well. And, and let's get you on some kind of a food podcast yes, <laughs> radio show. That would be great for everybody <laughs> access. It would really be wonderful. I could see it on all over NPR. I hope we do. Thanks, Zilka, for sharing this, this cool. poetry. In Thank this book. you
4: so much for having me again, Tim. All the best. Yep. Take care. You too.
1: Yeah, once again, it was Zilka Joseph. You can find her book, uh, Sweet Melita, I should say, um, yeah. at uh, her website, which is Zilka Joseph, Z-I-L-K-A Joseph, josep dot com. So find that book there and all of her other great work, too. Um, now we're going to take a quick break and go to our uh, prompt lines. So let me put this up. The prompt for this week... Um, was to revise a poem that you wrote a long time ago by radically shifting its perspective. So um, that is your prompt for this week. And if you'd like to participate, if you have a poem that fits this or any previous po- prompts that you'd like to share, we especially love seeing poems that you wrote for a prompt and then were published or you know shared somewhere else or anything that you know took a little more time to write. But it is fun to write a poem every week. And that's this week's prompt. If you'd like to share a poem, first email it to prompt lines. It's all one word, prompt lines at rattle.com. Email it there so I can show it on the screen like I have for the guests so far. And then find the Zoom link in the chat windows on Facebook, and youtube i'm pasting them in right now only if you want to share a poem though but if you'd like to share a poem um, hop onto the zoom and share it and email it to me Um, if you just want to sit back and enjoy the poetry for today uh, sit right where you are and uh, just enjoy it that's the best place to be is either facebook youtube or x uh, live so you can see the poems as we go Uh, if you go on the zoom just you know share your poem when it's your turn and go back to the youtube feed where the uh everything works best so uh there you go um and i'll be right back with the uh prompt lines and we're back thanks so much for your patience we have our prompt poems editor here katie dozier hey katie how you doing
5: hi doing great tonight it's been really wonderful
1: yeah it has it's been really fun um and i should say if anybody you know let me know what you think about having those bonus guests because it's we're up to 200 and what is it 34 episodes and so at this point um you know we have a lot of guests who have other books and so the question is do we want like what's ratio of like new guests to like returning guests and if we you know if we fit in a special guest like that for like 15 minute segment is that something that you want to hear more of because i could you know invite people more often or whatever but yeah let me know um but uh kitty so the prompt for this week as we already said Mm-hmm. was to write a revision, which is something that, um, as you might know, I'm not a big fan of revising poems. I've re- revised very few in my 43 years on this earth. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, I'm kind of a revise-as-you-go type poet. And if I, uh, if the poem doesn't go somewhere, I kind of just let it go and forget about it. So revising, yeah. this was like one of the most challenging prompts for me, to be honest. I didn't know what to do. Uh, what What did you do for it?
5: Well, I expected it, to be honest, to not be that hard for me, but it was challenging for me also. I did enjoy the trip down memory lane, which I hope was, to be honest, something I was hoping that everybody else would be able to see. I think it's really fun to see how much you've grown as a poet. And uh, for me, I enjoyed that. So for me, I was searching through my old email address from college and finding these kind of embarrassing fanboy type messages I was sending poor Barbara Hamby before she accepted me in her workshop. And this includes uh, this poem that I was, I remember being like really proud of this poem when I was like 18 and wrote it um, one summer interning in DC from college. And so I pulled it from, from like the beginning of my email address and edited it. So I think I'll just read the new version.
1: Okay. You don't want to read the old one? I oh,
5: I meant I can read the old one too, but I'm, I want to read that first so that it's not just like... Well, anyway, I think that it's better to read
1: in. <laughs> so which one are you reading first?
5: I'm going to read the one that I edited today.
1: Okay. Freshly e-
5: re- freshly revised, I should say.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Window Washer. I stare as he tears off the tinfoil, chomps on his white bread sandwich. How the peanut butter becomes a baseball in his weathered, tan cheek. He steals his water in gulps, water filled up, water tainted, in a cloudy plastic jug with a Sunny D label. As he balls up the foil, shoves it deep into the paint splattered cave of his pocket, The sun is cut from the sky and pasted inside, and he sees me nesting in a zoo of cubicles, the gray boxes, a habitat of filing cabinets, rivers of paper, a memo board squawking with the only bright color, hot pink post-its scrawled with sunless words, meeting in the boardroom at 3 p.m. My joke that everyone mistakes for a typo. I look up from the fake wood floor. His eyes meet mine. Squeegee in hand, he waves. Holding a clipboard, I try my best to do the same, all at once aware of how cold I feel. How I try to redirect my gaze to focus on turning a page just as he peels off his shirt.
1: Yeah, so great poem there. Great revision. So what was it that you did to make this uh, a new poem? Um, What did you shift around?
5: Well, first, uh, so I understand that it's not a radical perspective shift. So I, I give myself, I squeegeed by I would say in terms of following my own prompt. Um, But I, I thought that my original version, it was just like, it just stayed on, you know, me seeing him outside and how much better his life was. It didn't really go anywhere. And so shifting it so that he could see me too was the perspective that I added that the first one didn't have.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, Yeah. well, thanks. And and did you? uh, So, so did you find? Do you think you'll be revising more poems from the past? Is this something that you're going to keep doing, or is this a one shot thing?
5: I think that for the ones that I remember actually being proud of and having spent a long time on, like I think that this was a worthwhile. Thing because it, it did make me appreciate how quickly I can identify a problem area in a poem and then the parts that I liked the best then that I remember like are the parts that I ultimately kept in the new one and didn't need to improve on mm-hmm. so it is really fun to be able to feel better about how we're doing as poets and this is from 2006 I'm 38 this was a while ago <laughs> let's just
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is. It, and it was really fun for me too looking back. At older poems, I found some I actually liked and I wondered why I didn't include them in in my first book. I was like, "What? I, that was good. Why didn't I include it?" And yeah. there's some that I like way be- like but way less than the ones that I uh, you know found looking back through old. It was actually submission files that I found, <laughs> which yeah. is interesting, you know, cause like a submission to certain magazines and the whole thing is there still. Um, interesting to see but it was really fun it was a fun exercise to look back and we should say that on the poetry space this week that is the theme of the episode another one that's like the second week in a row where i don't really have a whole lot to say because i'm a terrible (laughs) reviser but um uh, yeah
5: Luckily, we have some people who will have a lot to say, I think, because I'm super excited that Christine Potter, who has many PR poems and is one of my favorite poets, is going to be joining us as well as Nicole Caruso Garcia, who is on episode 169 of the Rattlecast and has really cool thoughts and revision as well as Brian O'Sullivan, <laughs> Joe Barca, and Dick Westheimer. So I'm excited. We, d- we don't have to talk. We just get these people who know a lot.
1: That's true. Well, that's really good for this episode because I'm a terrible at it, but it is so fun. So the poetry space is going to drop it. We switched it a little bit around. Um, We're going to be releasing it as a sort of a, instead of a live recorded live podcast, it's going to release Friday right before the critique of the week every week. And Mm -hmm. so we can, uh, you can enjoy your your poetry discussion in a round table freewheeling format every Friday after the critique of the week. Uh, Mm -hmm. But looking forward to that. And thanks for uh, sharing this poem, Katie.
5: You know, I'd be remiss, too, if I didn't say if you guys missed Critique of the Week on Friday where Tim shared his cover letter, you (laughs) guys should go back and look at it. It's worth it just for that alone. That That was was
1: maybe was it adorable.
5: (laughs) It was. I'm sure that was what I said when I first read it. Uh, Not on camera. It was adorable.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, It was. You know, if you follow all the rules that everybody tells you, that's exactly what I did. So,
2: yeah. <laughs> so you can do Yay! it
1: i should i'll post it on my twitter too i meant to do that and kind of forgot so uh, you know let's post it tomorrow or sometime this yeah. week on the old twitter
5: and i will verify it as the true submission because i saw i saw i made tim print it out because i wanted to hold it in my hand and have the full <laughs> 2004 experience
1: Hit with my mom's address still in the upper <laughs> right hand corner <laughs> All right.
5: Well, are we gonna get to hear your poem?
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well thanks, Katie. Yeah, it's a pleasure as always. Great poem and, and good prompt. And we'll see you in a little bit for us, uh, see what okay, we great. what you have in store for us next week. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. It was Katie Dozier, our prompt poems editor with window washer. And now for me, you know, I did, if you watch the critique of the week, Katie pulled out two poems from those submission files I was looking at. And she said, maybe I'd want to revise them, but I was having trouble. Like I really don't revise poems. Like I sort of revise as I go. And once I'm out of that space, I like have real, a hard time getting back. And the two poems I read were more like what I write is lyric poems. And if you sort of the lyric goes somewhere, if you have a pressure and it enters some kind of special space and has a conclusion, it's good. And if not, I'll go somewhere else next time. Um, And so I was looking around and found a, a narrative poem. And so this poem, I did an Ellen Bass workshop around 2011 or 12. So it's about 12 years old or so. And she asked us to write a poem about our worst uh, our most embarrassing or our most um, the most shameful memory, I think she said. And I had two that came to mind. Um, and I wrote one of them. And this is the other one, which later I was reading B.H. Fairchild and thinking like, I could I kind of try to write a long, great narrative poem like B.H. Fairchild does. So I wrote this poem that was like five pages long and I just, it had no life. And I was looking at it and, you know, I just, I don't understand how to write narrative poetry. Uh, it's here. You can kind of see it. I don't know if I can do it right. But anyway, it's here. It's too long. But what I did is I turned that into more of a lyric. So that's my perspective, is turning a narrative into a lyric. That's the perspective shift that I decided to do. And uh, the best way to do that for me in a longer poem is this train kind of concept where you're pushing the language forward. So I had all this like grist of all the words and what happened in this memory, uh, which was about I guess I could introduce it and say it's about this neighbor family that moved in and we just terrorized them when I was like 12 years old and I don't even know why. It was so mean. We were really mean to the kids. It wasn't really me. It was like the other kids. At first I tried to befriend them and then they uh, decided that they were like too dorky or something. I don't know what. And we just like did prank after prank after prank on them and they escalated. And So this was... um this was one of the ones, and, and I shamefully participated, even though I was I was always the one like I don't know if we should do that, guys. But then I would go ahead and do it too. <laughs> so that's what happens when you're twelve. But anyway, this is called, and I'm sorry to the Youngs, but this poem is called The Youngs. And here it is. It's a bit it's a bit long. I could have it's about two pages. I could have it's double spaced um, as two pages. Um, but bear with me. Um, a little over two pages is double spaced, but that's how these poems are. So anyway, this is called The Youngs. Warm days we fish for salmon or carp or rainbow trout, any word we care to call them, alewife. Bowfin, walleye, muscalunge, with teeth enough to take a finger down. It doesn't matter what the name. These heavy bodies hauled up through the dark slop of the sewage creek to die and spawn or die and drowning. A paste of black muck on their meaty gills. Dirty water, ankle deep. They leap from pool to pool, exhausted over rocks and roots and bowling balls we stole from Dewey Gardens' dumpster down the street. Our game to smash those plastic spheres like eggs or crack the rounded rocks we drove. Drove their fourteen pounds against Whichever hard thing gave up first But it was us split board For supper time So there they lie Lead coconuts, two eyes, and nose, no mouth The black bass, another fish They probably aren't, whined Um, wind their urgent way around this monument to mess, oblivious my tackle, a hook and line, no pole, the bait, a slice of bread, I told my father would be fed to ducks, I drop the line but nothing bites, add more bread and cast again, as Mike runs off to make a spear and Dave dives in, horizontal hydroplane arms outstretched every scrawny inch of him engaged in reaching for the fish which scatter all at once to gone but one white wake, the wave of it, barrels into the open end of an upturned shopping cart and thrashes in its cage, headlong into the lichen-covered bars, and by the time I climbed down to meet him, Dave's dragged the frantic mass by the tail to the nearest bank. We gather there to watch it die. It dies. It doesn't matter what we call it, the death, the life, the lightning spark, or echo afterward, and here comes Sarah Young, mother of three, a teller at a bank all day, handling money that isn't hers, her fingers cracked and calloused from the counting, new bills and crumpled notes, all of it dusted with blood and coke. I heard, and Dirt from the street, grease from the engine well, and sweat and saliva somehow, some of them hungry enough, they're licking it, and she's always got a cold, always sniffling. She's climbing up the asphalt drive in a station wagon, heat of the day, another weight above her, but at least her boys are coming home from summer camp, her three kids overkind, the kind we want to crack, and think on that, as six paces from the mailbox, she hit the stench of what's been baking there since noon, that flesh dissected with a stick, both eyes gone, their blackened pits still glaring feast of flies grazing on the wet that's leaking through a shredded grocery bag and soaking her electric bill but here is where she doesn't flinch vomit in a bush no bile dripping down her chin no pallor no sudden horror at her evening gift and what to call it when she doesn't turn to mark each little monster's house or look for signs she's being watched instead she sighs and waits a beat then goes inside to fetch her rubber gloves so 6 months later husband john an engineer at the camera plant his last vacation before the layoffs downsizing like a new disease it's been snowing off and on for days but he's got a dozen rolls of bermuda in his bag and a blazing tan to prove it his family half asleep from the six-hour flight and the drive home has been his for humming endless banks of white from the plows like mountains in the moonlight so scalable and small hospitable another glass of port and then to bed he thinks at the glow of his own porch light the driveway dark the snow berm two feet deep the wagon's been through hell and back he guns it how the the bumper's rusty prow puffs up proud before slamming into the icy wall we laid layer by layer with a garden hose last week the sound is loud enough to wake the neighbors down the street but john's a stubborn man and puts it in reverse four more tries until the engine dies each young so still they hear the faintest tickling of a fluid dripping from the car. They stare ahead, their faces merely flesh until the father opens up his door and one by young one, the youngs ascend in silence, father, then mother, then son, then son, then son, and call it what we will, their will, their Buick splayed across the icy bank like the carcass of a buck we killed. That is a longest train poem. Sorry for the length of that, but that's how it ended up. I tried to condense it down as much as I could and it was like a five-pager that came to little over two. Um, But that is my poem for this week. Let's see what everybody else has. And let's go first to Brent Stauffer. Hey, Hey. Brent. It's great to see you early in the show. Usually you're one of the people who pop on a little later. So it's nice to see you. Yeah, right
3: on. Yeah, I was, uh, I'm totally unprepared. (laughs) Uh, Especially especially after that uh, blockbuster of a poem, Tim. That was really
1: something. Well, thanks. I need to take a sip. I'm like yeah. thirsty now.
3: That is was one of those long ones. Yeah. <laughs> you can't really you, stop. I, I know you were busy reading, but I, 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 was watching everybody, and I saw Dick's reaction, and I, and I, and I quite agree with uh, it. Was um, it was a it was a it was a, it's a stunning piece of work, Tim.
6: Oh well, thanks. It's thanks really a lot. fine.
3: Yeah, um, I had fun with this, uh, with this prompt. Um, once I. Found a poem that um, was worth salvaging. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that was a trouble too. I was looking through stuff, and like nothing seemed worth the effort to you know if there was nothing there, it was just empty, so it was hard
3: yeah, yeah i've 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 I revised a lot, so I've actually got combed through most of my uh, graveyard so to speak <laughs> already and rejuvenated what i could um but uh this poem was a definitely a failed poem it was a it was a prompt poem from i'm not sure when um but it was an attempt at a can zone hmm. and uh my perspectival shift uh was to say screw the form and um I, I, and, and just see what comes when you release it from those constraints. And, um, I kept a lot of the repetition and, um, I'm not sure that it's, uh, any less of a failed poem now, but it, it's better than it was. That's for sure.
1: Well, it's here. It. I'm looking forward to it after, production. Uh, okay. yeah, thanks.
3: Uh, It's called uh, Drinking Vodka in an Abandoned Backyard Lingering twilight Lazily laces Bamboo stalks In this cleared circle You and I Make light conversation Heaviness lifts We feel light Our words fade Slowly in the air We're hovering in the air You know how I am, you say. I take what I want, you say. Sweet honeysuckle stalks the dim perimeter. Should I break the circle, Enchantment? Your boyfriend is not a very good friend. Do you feel the future pressing in on us? I fear the morning light striking the empty bottle.
1: Oh, what a great ending. I love the space around that whole poem, and that ending is just perfect. Thanks so much for sharing that, Brent.
3: Nice. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Katie Thanks, everybody.
1: Yeah, definitely. Always a pleasure. Great to see you. See you soon. Yeah, it was Brent Bye. Stauffer with a, Drinking Vodka in an Abandoned Backyard. I Fear the Morning Light Striking the Empty Bottle. Yeah, great ending. Let's go next to I think this is a first time caller. It says Dusty and Chelsea. Hello. Hey, yeah. Thanks so much for joining us.
7: I'm glad to be here.
1: Um. So, so who is this? This is um, uh, Chelsea McClellan. Yes. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much for being here. So, this is a definitely a radical revision we have. So, what did you do differently with this poem? The time to get dressed is what I have here.
7: Yes. So this comes from the problem made me think of um a poem from a little over a decade ago that was my first attempt at a spoken word poem, uh, called. Why I can't get dressed mm-hmm. and uh so my perspective changes both in form and um a a, a ton jump in a decade jump in time, and you know the life changes that happen in ten years mm-hmm.
1: so. very interesting, yeah, this is definitely different you know as you'll see it in a moment on screen um very different from a spoken word type home or sonnet like <laughs> so let's let's hear it.
7: Time to get dressed. Mid-dream, cold and unsympathetic thumbs the size of half my pinky. Peel the skin off my eyes. She shouts, it's morning time, mom. I can't do it, mommy, I need help. Chin now peeking out where eyes just were, like a hat too big, her too small shirt stuck on the tip of her nose. I wiggle and pull so that cotton expands and hazel eyes search, hid under a blonde waterfall. I suppose, I say, it's nature walk day and almost time. There was a time I was too sad for clothes. Once, when my womb was still her world, I cried. I can't do it, Lord. Lord, I need your help. And help he sent, my little thumbs compelled.
1: Oh, really great poem! Like, wonderful, and, and that the contention that you did there, I assume, is just really makes the poem feel powerful. So, thanks so much for sharing that. Really, I think I, you must be happy with that revision, right?
7: Yes, I I liked how it turned out. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Oh, where are you
1: calling from, too, Chelsea?
7: Uh, We're in Northwest Ohio.
1: Uh, Very cool. Well, thanks so much for joining. Hope you get to share a poem again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was Chelsea McClellan with Time to Get Dressed. And uh, next up, let's go to none other than Dick Westheimer. Hey, Dick. Hey, Tim. Hey, great to see you.
8: Good to see you. YouTube just blew up with your poem. It was like people from all over the universe came. Oh, really?
1: Well, that's interesting. Well, I mean, well, those poems—you know, the, there's a lot of energy in those, and I think they do well for readings. I guess <laughs> maybe, maybe less on the page, but they uh, they perform well, maybe.
8: Yeah, that, that that would be interesting to have somebody else read one of those um, to hear whether it has that same energy.
1: Yeah, because well, I actually you, had you're... an experiment with, or uh, experience with. Um, Someone else, there was a radio show when American Fractal came out out of, like, the University of Pennsylvania, and they read that um, poem as part of, like, a radio segment, and she actually read it very similar, and that made me, that was one of the most, um, you know, gratifying things, because I searched for that form for a long time to get the the sound out, and to hear it read like that was really nice, so. So, anyway, what do you have to share for us, though?
8: Um, So... I had done this twice. I had I had I said I had written read the thing about revising a poem. So I took a poem and just sort of line edited, and then this morning I read somebody on uh, Katie's page on Facebook saying, reminding me that this was a reinterpreting. So I quickly (laughs) did one. It's not terrific, but I just wanted to play the game. So. this was my 3rd I think poets respond poem I sent in 2018. It's oh, really interesting to look back. What was the story? It, uh it was the anniversary of Martin Luther King's uh junior's death mm-hmm. uh April 4th 19 um uh, I guess it would have been the 40th 50th. Um and I just wrote this rhetorical kind of poem um that was had very little very little movement in it, sort of repeating King's lines and you know, sort of power to the people sort of sort of poem. it was it was ridiculous. And I thought, I'll, I'll see if I can make a poem out of that. And I changed the perspective, and I had how the how nine thousand be a. Uh, computer tell the story? Because the original poem had Hal 9000 in it from 2001. Oh, that's very really
1: interesting. Yeah. <laughs> a different thought, change in narrator, for sure. What
8: of <laughs> Hal 9000 tells the story? And so this this is a draft. We'll see how it goes. Hi, now Hal 9000 tells its side of the story. And, you know, I fear that there are a lot of folks who won't even know the movie. So I had to put in uh, the second epigraph. He taught me to sing a song. If you'd like to hear it, I can sing it for you. That's the HAL 9000 to Dave as it was losing its memory in 2001, A Space Odyssey. I've been planning since that day, April the 4th, 1968. I heard Martin tell Ben to play, take my hand, precious Lord, and I knew the rev meant me. I was there at the lorraine when james took aim killed the king in one shot a 30 ought right to the face i never forget but they locked me away on discovery one and sent me to space the men on board were like all the rest i tried to tell them what was lost the cost but dave was afraid and did me in now all anyone remembers is the dream not the hope that was a stone, not the silence. That silence was a sin, not the conscientious stupidity we'd drown in. So I kept Dave on board, sang to him as he wiped me clean. Take my hand. I wanted to sing, but all I could recall was Daisy.
1: Oh, really interesting poem, Dick. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, you could really hear the voice of Hale too. Do you know you can uh, you can find there's a there was a Stephen Hawking voice simulator. <laughs> we had a poem in Stephen Hawking's voice once, and uh, we thought about having it read in that, but then decided it was like too i don't know too much maybe <laughs> to have it done like that, but I think you could find a Hal one too and have that poem read in Hal's actual voice and that would be, oh that would be something I could, I could kinda I could hear it in the background, but to have it actually as Hal would be really interesting too <laughs> thanks for sharing that dick
8: good shot that thanks Tim thanks everyone. bye.
1: Yeah, that was Dick Westheimer with um, uh, "Hail 9000 Tells Its Side of the Story. Uh, let's go to Douglas Silver next.
6: Tim, hi Katie, hi all the poets. Yeah, hey
1: Douglas, good to see you.
6: Good to see you as always. Um, I wrote this first piece uh, almost exactly five years ago when my wife Monica was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. It was written from my perspective. I was going through a grieving process with her. Um, for her uh for this week's prompt i switched the perspective to her point of view Mm -hmm. um you know still in the first person but she's the speaker and i tinkered with it quite a bit sorry the way i talked about the grieving process made it sound like there was a tragic ending but she's she's fine you know that's great to hear yeah really glad to hear that
1: the the way i phrased
6: that it sounded like it could have been otherwise but no she's she's healthy thank you Mm -hmm. um but just changing the perspective and tinkering with it changed the poem a lot and in my opinion it really um it made it more profound. So I really enjoyed the exercise. Thank you. Yeah,
1: very cool. Well, looking forward to it. Go ahead.
6: So the one that I revised for tonight is called Bed Making. And this is um, from her perspective. She's a speaker. We've always done the chores, you and I, without speaking of them. The dishes in and out of the dishwasher, or you'll chop the vegetables and I'll cook them, or I'll get the silverware and you'll grab some plates, the napkins, As I'm wiping down the stove, the countertops, you'll take out the trash, the recyclables, the compost. And if I do the laundry, maybe you're scrubbing the tub. But recently, maybe because I'm sick, maybe because I'm busy, maybe because you're not busy, maybe because you're not sick. You started doing all of them by yourself and the bed's too big to make without me. So you need to go back and forth from your side to mine and back again and again to get it right, or at least close to right. While you were still hers, maybe 16, your mother told you you weren't good with free time. How did she know this? Who's not good with free time? It's so easy and free. But she then, like she now, your mother, knew you better than you knew yourself then, maybe better than you know yourself now. That's why you remember her little jab she jabbed so long ago because she knew and you couldn't know, understand it then, and you can just begin to know to understand it now. So now with me sick, with me busy, you're chopping the vegetables, making our dinner alone, loading and unloading the dishwasher alone, taking out the vegetable choppings for the future garden alone. And just when you're doing all that, And just when I'm thinking all this, you're making the bed alone, heading back to your side. I come in, pull the sheet up tight on my side, rearrange our pillows perfectly. And without a word, so early and still so dark, I'm saying silently, letting you know, at least for now, maybe more than now, that anything can be made better, that everything can be made right. Oh uh, really, you very much yeah wonderful
1: poem doug i mean that you hear i think the great revision and there's so much emotion that comes through by shifting that perspective and imagining you know what it was like to be her yeah really re- wonderful stuff
6: thank right. you tim very much i appreciate it
1: yeah thanks douglas yeah it was uh, douglas silver with bed making and really great revision i think that was a, a good choice
6: thank you
1: uh, let's go next to uh nate jacob hey hey nate yeah great to see you
2: Good to see you. It's been a while.
1: It has, yeah. How you doing?
2: I'm good. Hey, I uh, I wanted to revise something I didn't remember ever having written. <laughs> well, those are
1: the best kind, I guess.
2: <laughs> so I went all the way back to the first poem I have record of ever having written, which was when I was six years old.
1: Oh, wow. That's an impressive record. <laughs> yeah, Katie's giving the I, two thumbs up over there on the Zoom.
2: <laughs> it's uh, I sent the images. Is that on there? Um, let me, yeah, yeah, we have it here. So you want to read it, It's very well, short. <laughs> 22 words. Um, like I say, this is anthologized in our first grade. <laughs> printout. I don't know what you can call it. Anyway, hippopotamus, fat and grumpy and wet. Eats a lot. You can't ride on him. He can't fly. He can't drive. Nathan <laughs> Jake.
1: <laughs> that's a really great name And you know definitely you know, Signing up for the Rattle Young Poets Anthology
2: yeah, yeah. I'm only a few years past the, the <laughs> <poem>. I <don't laughs> So I, uh, I went ahead and took this um, I don't know if I revised it Because I'm like you I don't revise poems Once they come out They're finished mm-hmm. uh, This might be more of a response But it is in a different perspective
1: Well that's good That definitely counts
2: So it's titled Nathan Become Hippo become Nate, become hippo. Maybe, just maybe, the future looked to Nathan like the glimmering sunblocked backs of an approaching thunder, a tumble of hippos, his own hippopotamus wallowing and sidelined, noshing its feelings all wide-mouth agape, so darn easily obese and crabby in the heat, too hippo to be safe to ride upon, too fat to jump over the moon, just plain too far gone for flight, for travel at all. Nathan never really saw so well into the future. And while Nathan was good in the moment, Nathan only saw hippos and himself as trouble. But look at me now, you perfect, unclever child. I am more I am more often than not thin, happy, dry, well-nourished and strong enough even now to carry you with me on my wide back to to airplane you in the yard by your arm and leg, so that you feel as if you, though grounded, do fly. Maybe, just maybe, I am become hippopotamus, destroyer of worlds, but maybe, just maybe, you are now safe and, war- and fed and warm and dry. Oh, that is so fun. Uh, Nate Jacob with
1: Nathan Become Hippo, Become Nate, Become Hippo. I love the title. I always love your titles, Nate. And that is the, that's the award for the funnest poem so far. That was really fun. Thanks for sharing it. Thank you. Yeah, that was Nate Jacob once again. Uh, and uh, next in line, we have Zachary Honeycutt.
9: Hey, Just Tim. How's it going?
1: Hey, great. Yeah, great to see you, Zachary.
9: <laughs> so I have... Uh... I have not a red scent from the dog, from the dog's perspective.
1: Ah, interesting.
9: Yeah, so uh, should I read the original and then read the... It's quite short. Yeah, it's
1: pretty short. Why don't you do that? Sure.
9: Okay. Not a red scent from the dog. Was with my dad, smelled something bad. As the door opened, saw an older woman, dressed to dine, who brought with her, this raggedy dog, not dressed to dine. Why does she need to bring him right now? He's a cheapskate, he won't pay later when the bill comes, droned my father. Why does anyone need to bring a dog with them to a restaurant in this town? Replied I. It'd be worse if the dog brought her.
1: <laughs> very interesting. I remember that from a previous Rattlecast. I, th- I thought yeah. I did. So I'm good, glad to have the, uh, the memory of it. Let's see the new version.
9: Yeah, the new, the new version. I like the dog's perspective better, Tim. Okay. Not a red scent from the dog, from the dog's perspective. Was with my mom when I saw these two very judgmental, humans gawking at me. As the door opened, it must be because I look good and they can't handle it. Last night I stuck my nose up the butts of two rich poodles who were playing in three puddles, thought it was great, but when they wanted to start something with me, I replied, I'm more into Boston Terriers. You're just not my type. Anyway, the humans gawking at me were mumbling amongst themselves about my greatness, my shaggy self. All right, I'm coming back down to Earth. I'm quite aware I don't actually exist, and I'm just some figment of the imagination of this crazy 29-year-old writer who goes on a poetry podcast hosted by a middle-aged man who has a penchant for poetry and an obsession over the length of the follicles of his beard and his blonde-haired cohort who sometimes struggles to put up shelves and points out the existence of whiteboards. Oh, wait, what's that, Zachary? You want me to be a shaggy dog that keeps quiet... And isn't actually aware of its own non existence. All right. I'll shut up.
1: <laughs> well, you and uh, Nate Jacob are vying for the most fun poem. I saw Lisa Seidenberg and Katie over there laughing Thank as you. you read it. Like, <laughs> very fun. Uh really fun. I'm glad you read the, both poems too. That was a good uh, a good comparison yeah. and contrast. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Zach. <laughs>
9: Yeah, lesson in a break in the fourth wall tonight, I guess.
1: Yeah, very good. It was surprising. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that.
9: <laughs> yeah, see you guys next week. Bye
1: bye. Zachary Honeycutt with uh not a rent sent from the dog from the dog's perspective. <laughs> okay. Yeah, great. So all the poems really that we've seen today, I think are getting better with revision, which is interesting to see. Um so maybe I should revise my poems. <laughs> That's maybe the point. Let's bring back Katie Dogort, our prompt poems editor. Hey Katie.
5: Hey, if you're going to write an amazing poem for a prompt, feel free to give me the heads up so that I do not get up to that extent. Your poem was amazing. Oh, well,
1: thank you. Well, it was I didn't really add any. I just shrunk it and then made it more rhythmic. But yeah.
5: Well, it was great. I mean, I'm I'm rarely one to argue for a two-page poem, but I'll argue for that one. <laughs>
1: oh, well, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> so oh i didn't do the saiku yet let me do the saiku and then we'll talk about the prompt i think that's oh, a better okay. order maybe yeah okay
5: Sure. i'll come back i'll be right here well just
1: be right here don't go anywhere okay <laughs> okay he's not going anywhere and the saiku really quickly for this week you scroll down to it, it was based on this story which a lot of people heard i multiple people including uh rattles founder alan fox was talking about this story at our editorial meeting he really liked it so it must have gotten around a lot but this is from the european southern observatory And the story is this, if I can shrink it enough to fit it on this tiny screen. Um, Brightest and fastest growing astronomers identify record-breaking quasar. So it's a quasar that they found. um, And it's, uh, how far away is it? It's uh, 17, or no, it's at the size of 17 billion suns. It's about 15 times the the distance from the sun to Neptune's orbit. But it's this massive, massive black hole that's made a quasar from the, uh, the disk around it as it sucks up all these stars. It eats the equivalent of a sun, our own sun, every day. That's how huge the star is. And it's actually the brightest thing in the entire universe that we've found yet. And it's a black hole. So that is the thing they found here, this uh, quasar that's record-breaking for its brightness. And this is the Syku that inspired that. Here we go. This universe, we know nothing brighter than a black hole. This universe, we know nothing brighter than a black hole. That is your sign coup for the week. And that is the show for this week. So, Katie Dozier, what are we doing next week for the uh, prop poem and stuff like that?
5: Well, inspired by Michael Mayerhofer's poem and book, we are going to write a what to do if poem about what to do in an unusual situation, and I am excited about this one. This prompt, also, can I say, you and I both had the same idea, <laughs> but to be fair, you texted it to me first, so but I was getting a manicure, so I have an excuse.
1: <laughs> well, I believe you, I think you're telling the truth, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, that poem, I mean, it's really interesting. We didn't get into it, but but the research of actually, I think that that poem. what to do if you're buried alive i mean that could save someone's life i mean i don't plan to be buried alive but i have a strategy now at least before i probably would have just pounded and screamed and wasted my breath but now i'm gonna kick until an avalanche comes and bicycle my way up until i can stand up and then maybe it'll work
5: And then you can truly say, po- say that poetry saved your life. So. Exactly,
1: literally, not even <laughs> Literally, not even thanks to Michael
5: Mayerhofer, whose <laughs> films were awesome, and I really enjoyed the interview
1: tonight, too. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, Michael, was great. A really fun show. The longest show we've had in a bit, but it's a lot of fun. So thanks, uh, thanks for getting the prompts uh, rolling, Katie, as always, and being here, enjoying uh, your good cheer, as we do. Well,
5: thanks to you, and I'll see you on the Poetry Space which will be released on Friday, about revisions. So, thanks to everybody, too, who commented about their own revision process because it helped me for planning the
1: show. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yeah, should have a good discussion about revision with a bunch of people that are, you know we've seen here before and some new faces, too. A roundtable discussion about that. Looking forward to it. Dropping on Friday. I'll see you before then, of course. Uh,
5: and then we should just mention that this is, as you brought up with Lisa when you were talking to her, that this is the end of the month. So, this prompt is going to be the first for the next batch. Mm-hmm. And and your prompt poems are due by February 29th, which I'm spending at the dentist. So
1: <laughs> oh, it's oh
5: right. but I'll get the poems, so it'll be worth it. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm going to
1: the dentist the next day, so there's oh, <laughs> In
5: a different state, yeah. <laughs>
1: <Yep>. but um, <laughs> but yeah. So get your prompts poem in, prompt poem prompt poems in by Thursday night. This one coming up is for March, so and you know enjoy that. Looking forward to seeing what everybody writes.
5: Thanks so much.
1: Yep. Thanks, Katie. Bye. Bye. This is Katie Doger, our Prompt Poems Editor. And uh, next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be uh, Erica Reed. So, Erica Reed had a wonderful one, The Raft, which is really creative with the way that the, she's br- using onomatopoeia, blowing the breath in there as you go. And I, I don't know. I'm curious if she, if you look back at that poem, if she actually looked up a real name in the phone book. So, we'll maybe find out. And if you want to know what i'm talking about and don't go back and look at that poem but she has her first book her first full-length collection out ghost man on second a baseball reference so i like that a lot but there's an interesting cover as well it was winner of the the 2023 or two it's too small i can't see donald justice poetry prize um so it should be a great book i'm really looking forward to talking to her erica reed Rattlecast number 235 plus your prompt poems what uh, write a what to do if poem about what to do in an unusual situation. And that is your prompt. That's your show. Thanks everybody for joining me and I'll see you on Monday, March 4th at the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you there. Hope to see you on the space and the critique of the week and all that too. I'll talk to you later. Good night.